I'm going to um, introduce Julia first. Um, Julia is the filmmaker of The Light in Her Eyes. She's also the director of Clock Shop, which is a nonprofit arts organization in Los Angeles. Her work's been broadcast on PBS and Al Jazeera, and um, she has been in the Toronto International Film Festival and the Rotterdam Film Festival. And in 2005, correct, you lived in Damascus for a year, and um, it was that ex experience uh, that led her to make the film Light in Her Eyes, which is an intimate portrayal of Huda al-Habash and the Quran School for Women and Girls that she founded at Al-Zahra Mosque over years ago. Our other panelist is Asma Min. Asma is project, uh, project manager at the California Public Leadership Pipeline Project, which is a, a collaborative of four different organizations and cultivates leadership roles for people interested in running an office, correct? She's also part of the Advancement Committee for the Women's Mosque. And she's going to be talking about her experience in Yemen, uh, which is something, something very interesting. Most people think about a women's mosque or a women's school of, of that nature in Yemen. Then it gets even more interesting. We have uh, Professor Gladney, who's a professor in the Department of Anthropology at Pomona College. And um, he, is, he has written four books and 50 articles on the Asian continent and will be sharing with us his thoughts and his experience on the mosque in China. Inshallah. Inshallah. <laughs> what made me want to make the film was the experience of going to Buddha's mosque and seeing this room full of girls and women reading the Quran and encouraging each other to do that. And that image and that experience was so counter to what my, you know, American, Western, and also Jewish, I'm Jewish, understanding of what happens in a mosque. And I thought, People need to see this because this definitely is a different image than the one that we're fed, which I'm sure everyone here knows, which is men in a mosque, usually in Pakistan or Afghanistan, memorizing in a very kind of like monotonous way, and everyone thinks, oh, that's what Islam is. I think that it's really, really hard to explain that world and the forces that these women exist within, and to show how Kuda is really stretching the boundaries of the rules in her world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, she lives in a totally different world than I do, and <coughs> we do, and it's, she has a very, very fine, careful line to tread with people within her community who trust their daughters with her, and maybe are more conservative than she is, or more traditional in the ways that they want their daughters to grow up. They wouldn't send their daughter off to the Emirates to be educated, you know? And so it's it's a very, very careful line that she had to tread, and I think that's the thing that's very hard to translate here, is that it's, it's not a black and white world there, it's very gray. Mm -hmm. And that to change things in that world, you have to move so, so slowly, and so carefully. And to encourage girls to read, and to look at the Quran, and to look for the message that really encourages them to be leaders, and to do what they want to do, I think, for me, I think that's a message. Considering the environment that she is yeah. in, this is actually quite a big deal to begin with. Yeah. I mean, those girls, most of the girls that go to her mosque live, uh, they come from pretty traditional families. And the fact that, that their parents were letting them leave the house and go to the mosque every day and come back and go out with their friends, that was maybe something that, you know, that other families wouldn't do. Mm -hmm. So, it's a totally different context. There are definite similarities to just how um, in this documentary in terms of like 
the, they call it the Musala, the women's prayer area. And ironically, it's, it's also, um, the, the institution there is also called Dar al Zahra, so it's the same name. Um, and there are girls from all over the world who come and study there. And so there's actually a space in that Musala where some of the girls are housed there and they also have Quranic lessons. Um, they also have prayers there. And so it's, it's really similar. So I kind of just brought back memories of when I was there. Um, and so we were there for just the summer. Again, I was there for less than a week, but then there were um, housing for women who came from like Australia and England and a few from the US. Um, and they would have lessons every day um, for 40 days in terms of just with regards to like Islamic law and just the basics of just learning Islam according to like the school of thoughts that people followed. Um, so that was really interesting just also seeing that space of just learning that was provided um, to people, to women in Yemen and those who are not from Yemen who attended. Um, the area was in Tarim, and Tarim is just known to be a very scholarly area. A lot of well-known um, scholars in Islam actually went and studied there. The difference here in, in the documentary versus um, in Yemen is a very distinct um, difference is the attire. Um, so in Yemen, um, a lot of people wear niqabs where like, they cover their face and like a guy, so it's all in black. In terms of the environment and the space for women to learn, it was actually really empowering. The problem for China, of course, is that when you talk about Muslims in China, people don't know very much. Some of them do. Uh, increasingly, there's more information. But whenever I mention it, people like you know, there are Muslim men say women's mosques in China. And if you can see this little square, I'm sorry that we're not getting the function here, but you can just see where that little square is. That indicates women's masala, mosque, masjid, however you want to translate that. This was uh, like a cultural trend in Syria specifically. There's a lot of mosques that have schools for girls in them. So this is, was not the only one. Um, but what I saw is that women, young girls, were encouraged to read and stand up in front of each other and present, and that gave them the ability to speak to each other and to not be quiet and, you know, timid. Um, and I, I mean, I think from the assistants who are with me, my, my friend Itab and Yasmin, who shot with me in Nawada, um, what they said is that there was, it was remarkable how these girls were able to present themselves. Mm -hmm. And that that's not something that was encouraged of, you know, any of my friends who were Syrian in their regular everyday secular school, or in their families, necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that was significant. Um, and I also think that a lot of the girls who were around Inas, Huda's, you know, Huda's daughter, they had a sense of what was really right for them within Islam and what was not right. The happening is with consciously or unconsciously, they just gain a certain amount of self-confidence, yeah. the ability to speak, the ability that I have a voice, I have yeah. a mind, that they can be heard. Um, and that's, I'm, that's really significant. Of course. That's really of course, that in and of itself is the first yeah. really big step. Totally. There are two sets of groups that were there. The first one is the one that I've been mainly, I was mainly exposed to, which were those who were coming from different countries and learning within that, they call it the Dower program, within that 40-day program. Um, and then there is a separate group of young girls who are there like year-round. Um, and they're much younger, 
Uh, they, some of them were th they started, I think, probably in the teens. Um, and so, so with those, I didn't have that much interaction with, just because of where I was, you know, placed, and we were going with my sister-in-law. Um, and in terms of um, whether it's indirect and direct, I think it's a little bit of both. So there were women who actually returned, and they actually did the 40-day program before, either a year or two years, or just several years prior, and they were itching for just reconnecting with like Islam and just with their spirituality. Because in Tunim, a lot of it is more Sufi based, and so it's much more about like the spirituality and whatnot. Um, and so a lot of them directly chose to return and just sort of, I guess in a sense, renew their spirituality. Um, and then there were also, I think, other girls who did have the objective of maybe possibly teaching, um, you know, in Islam or, you know, whether they want to go into academia or not. But for the most part, at least with the ones I interacted with, it was more of the um, indirect goal, right, of just kind of tapping into themselves and just reconnecting with them, with, with God for themselves and, and whatnot. Um, and not through being told by a man exactly. what you're supposed to you yeah. know, having someone be an intermediary. Right, to. right. And so that was really interesting because I would, um, we, we stayed like in our own apartment there, um, but then each of the, uh, I guess, subgroups of um, women who came to study, they were placed according to like a specific household. Um, and so one household was comprised of primarily like Australian women, and then another one is primarily of like people from like London. And um, so it was like a mixed batch, and according to like the, the countries they were coming from. And so I would kind of just go hang out with them during the day, um, and just talk, get to know them, go to some of the classes that were being offered. And some, like they took vacation from work, like they worked, others were students, um, some of them were in like their mid to like late 20s, so it actually really ranged, um, and the, the people in like the specific room that I sort of just hung out with, because that's where my sister-in-law was, um, was placed, um, there was a girl from Canada, another one from Singapore, um, so it was pretty diverse, um, and that was really interesting, just sort of hearing about their stories and their narrative, and they were the ones who made the decision to actually want to come and learn in Yemen. Women have not had an easy time in China. Uh, like most, most, most Muslim women anywhere. Um, but somehow they've managed to survive and to thrive. And perhaps the women's mosque was a place where they could do this uh, on their own and, and in a place of, of security and freedom that they could not find in the public society, in the public civil society. Uh, China is now, as you know, a booming economy, but women have not pace with men at all. Uh, and so I'm not surprised that these women's mosques are becoming more popular in China. Uh, and there are more and more women uh, being trained, and particularly with globalization, traveling abroad to study, etc. The level of learning, the level of knowledge, Islamic knowledge, as far as I can tell, among Muslim women in China is extraordinarily high. There's an excerpt in the movie about a, a girl who comes to the, like it's her and her mother came and she's going through it. Or divorce and so did, did she give out a lot of advice mm -hmm. in these matters mm -hmm. and um, so what so would she find lawyers for these girls sometimes or just, okay yeah sometimes I mean sometimes she would recommend people but 
you know, her role was really like to be an advisor and a teacher in her community. And so all of the families that sent their girls there, she was really a resource for yeah. the people in that community. I just wanted to touch upon the sisterhood that you were mentioning. Within like that, I wasn't even there for a whole week, but that was something that I completely experienced. Um, women were just so supportive and encouraging of each other, and they really like tried their hardest to really take care of you. Um, and that was something that I don't think I've ever experienced in such a short amount of time in a foreign country um, with like complete strangers. Um, so that was something that I think, you know, hopefully also with the women's mosques creating the sisterhood, um, that that was something that I definitely valued a lot when I was there. Huda doesn't regard herself as a feminist, but I think that what she understands of feminism and what most, you know, honestly I was going to say non-Western, but I think what most people understand of feminism these days is not necessarily what I think, what I think <laughs> version of feminism is and so you know I mean I, I don't think that there is any um, there's no way to sort of map those values onto that place you know feminist Western values and as much as I feel like there's a desire to do that to say like oh but you're here empowering women it's just not a one-to-one -one. you know it's it's a really different it's a really different set of conditions and, you know, societal rules that are living by. And so, personally, I think what she was doing, from my interpretation, was really feminist. But Huda would never say that. One woman who was going to be a main character, her name is Dr. Iman. She's a dentist. She studied Quran. She had a husband who had a business. They had a daughter. And she was like, I study dentistry to, to be a doctor and to serve my community and that's what I'm going to do and she had worked out her schedule she's like I take care of my daughter during the day I make the meal for my husband at four o'clock and then I have my clinic at night and she takes her daughter to the clinic and she worked from 6 to 10 p.m. and saw women in her community and I was like that's kind of an interesting <laughs> way of negotiating it you know and her husband was very supportive of her career and was like that's what she studied and she's going to keep working so I, I think that there are ways that those values translate, but to use that word is very complicated. Thank you guys for sharing your experiences with us about all these you know, corners of the earth. Um, and I hope that we continue here to thrive and have our moments grow bigger and bigger. So I love Thank you. Thank you.